This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 33, part A. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hey everyone, welcome to today's episode. Glad to uh, to bring on Moshe today, and we still have Aram, my good friend. He's decided to stick around, so I'm going to turn it over to Aram. We're going to kick this thing off immediately. Let's go. Thanks, Nolan. That was that was <laughs> a great vote of confidence from you. I always appreciate that. <laughs> hey, folks, it's my uh, pleasure to uh, welcome today Moshe Cohen as our guest. Moshe's been teaching negotiation, leadership, and conflict resolution, as well as organizational behavior as a founder of the Negotiating Table since 1995 and as a senior lecturer at Boston University's Questrom School of Business since 2000. He has worked with thousands of students and companies worldwide. As a mediator, Moshe has worked to resolve hundreds of matters and also coaches, executives, managers, and individuals on leading others and negotiating effectively. He has two books, Collie Wobbles, How to Negotiate When Negotiating Makes You Nervous, and Optimism is a Choice and Other Timeless Ideas. He has also written numerous articles and cases and appears in podcasts, videos, and interviews. Moshe studied physics at Cornell and has a master's in electrical engineering from McGill University, specializing in robotics. After a dozen years in robotics, he completed his MBA at BU, fell in love with negotiation, mediation, and leadership, and joins us here today. Moshe, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. So Moshe, I want to hear your story. I think it's so interesting. How does someone who has a degree in physics and electrical engineering end up in the negotiation, mediation, conflict resolution field? So I thought most negotiators have degrees in physics. <laughs> maybe, maybe, well, listen, maybe after talking, we'll find out that they should. Maybe there's a reason uh, that the negotiator should have that background. So, you know, when I was in high school, I was good at science and I thought physics would be an interesting thing to study in college. And it turns out that physics in college is a completely different animal than uh, physics in high school. And I found it very, very hard. And uh, after I graduated with my degree in physics, I realized I couldn't possibly stay in physics. So I went into what seemed easier at the time. I went into electrical engineering and I worked as an engineer for a couple of years, thinking that if I was going to stay in engineering, I should have a degree in it. And that's when I went to McGill and got a master's in electrical engineering. I loved working in robotics. I worked in it for about 11 years. I worked in the space telerobotics field. So I worked on the shuttle arm and the station arm and other things that moved in space and, uh, and, and had moving parts. But over time, I found myself moving more towards the people side of things, not so much the computers and robots side of things. So I decided to go into management. Knowing nothing about management, I went back to school. And I went to BU, got my MBA. And after doing my MBA, I realized that I don't like managing anything. So yeah, that was money well spent. But I also realized that I loved my negotiation class. In fact, I loved all my organizational behavior classes and leadership, but particularly negotiation. And we did one segment on mediation and I fell in love. 
And as a result of that, I went to my professor. I said, how do I get into this? And I eventually got a basic mediation training and started volunteer mediating. And over time, this became my career and became a mediator in 95. And then in 96, people started asking me to teach. So I started teaching classes first in mediation then negotiation and then expanded to other subjects like leadership and communication. And then in 2000, BU invited me back in. So since 2000, I've been at BU. But I, I split my time between teaching at BU and running the negotiating table where I do a lot of corporate training and uh, coaching and those kind of things. So Moshe, I, I know with Nolan and I before I talk about instructors we've had who've been influential on us. Who who was this professor at BU that uh, must have taught an engaging negotiations course to kind of capture you this way? So his name was uh, Dave Brown, and he's since retired, but I'm very grateful. And then I had a whole bunch of other amazing professors there. There was uh, an Israeli professor by the name of Yael Ziv, who was wonderful. She taught me organizational behavior and leadership and uh, really turned me onto the field. And in fact, I can say that from her, not only did I learn the material, I learned how to teach. And a lot of the ways I teach today are influenced by her. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great tribute. I always like to, I, I've been heavily impacted by my previous teachers too. So jumping in here, Moshe, for the title of the book, Collie Wobbles, How to Negotiate When Negotiating, What on Earth Are Collie Wobbles? Where did that come from? And just diving right into to where on earth did this come from? So it's an archaic British term that literally means tummy ache. <laughs> and it's specifically used to mean that kind of tummy ache you get when you're nervous, nervous or anxious. You can see it. It shows up in some Disney movies um, in the original 101 Dalmatians. And in the movie Brave, they both refer to, to Collie Wobbles, and it's referred to in one of the Harry Potter books. So it's a real term. Most people have never heard it before. It wasn't my working title. Uh, my original title was something like How to Get Over Yourself and Negotiate Effectively. <laughs> but people said that's a little harsh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I remember it's. I, I heard the term for the first time. John Stewart used it on his show like 15 huh. years ago. And it stuck in my mind. And ever since then, I've had it in my mind. And I remember I was looking for a title when, when people told me that my original title was too harsh. And all of a sudden, this world word popped into my mind. And I said, that's perfect. <laughs> because the way I'm thinking of it is someone says, I want to negotiate with my boss for a raise, but I've got the collie wobbles. Because that's what people feel. Yeah. Well, all right. So I got to I got to one read the book and we're going to talk a little bit about it. I got to point out though, my friend, my dear friend, Nolan though, had to get the audio book and he said, you actually do your own reading on the audio book. And he said, you're fantastic. Yes. Yeah, so I was actually pretty impressed because most of the times authors, at least in my opinion, when I listen to an audio book, when the author choose to read his own book or her own book, it's not always the best quality compared to a professional reader. And I do want to say that you did an awesome job narrating your book and definitely sounded just as good as professional readers. So it was enjoyable to listen. I'll say that much. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, I was debating because I'm not a professional reader and reading the book took a, a quite a bit of time, but too many people told me that when they read the book, they heard my voice. So I figured that when people hear the book, it has to be my voice. So, Two of my sons, I have four kids, two of my sons are uh, into music. 
and they set up a recording studio for me in one of our spare bedrooms. Um, they have a professional mic that they used. And then my 16-year-old son actually did the initial producing of the audiobook. And then, wow. then I gave it to a professional sound editor to do the final product. But it was uh, it was a real family affair. We all we all went together and did this. That's very cool. Wow, what a what that's pretty amazing. All right, so why why this book? There's so many books on negotiation out there. You talked a little bit about what it covers, and we're going to dig continue to dig more into that. But what was the motive? What was your motivation, Moshe, for for writing a, a book called Collie Wobbles? So, you know, I've been teaching negotiation for over two decades, and what I've observed is that we are really good at teaching people skills and strategies, and then they go to use them and they choke. Something happens between learning the skills and using the skills. Something gets in the way. And more often than not, what gets in the way is their emotions. I can't tell you how many of my students have come to me and said, said I negotiate every day for my boss with clients, with vendors but I can't negotiate with my boss when it comes to my own career. And I ask them, what's different? It's the same skills. And what's different is that when it's them, all of their emotions come in, they feel stressed and they shut down. So I looked at all the stuff that was written before, and there are many, many good negotiation books out there. And they all give skills. They all give strategies. They all give you things to think about, but what they didn't address was the fact that stuff gets in the way. And what I wanted to write about was something that no one else has written about because I didn't feel like the book need, the world needs another negotiation book to teach more skills and strategies. I think that's pretty well covered. <laughs> so, um, you know, so that, so that was the thinking behind it. And the more I got into it, the more I realized that there's many things that get in the way. And it was a fun project to look at because what I really want to do is make an impact. I want people, you know, as I always tell people when I teach, I don't care what happens in class. I, will, I care what happens the day after when you go to try to use this stuff. So that, that's what I do book. Yeah. And I think what I liked so much about the book is you, you even clearly address in like the second chapter. It's like, hey, here, if you could do all these things right, right now, you'd be one of the greatest negotiators. But what happens and what your book addresses is like the actual application of academia. And so I think you're right at the bridge between application and academia. And that's what I think I liked most about the book is um, everyone knows the right answer, but actually practicing or implementing uh, the techniques that we're about to address, I'm assuming in this podcast, that's really the science behind the book. So I tried to do something practical. Look, you know, I, I read a lot of the books in the field. I mean, you take, you know, classic book in the field, getting to yes, we've all read it. And one of the great lines from getting, getting to yes is separate the people from the problem. All of my students mm -hmm. can recite that line by heart. But then again, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. Right? I can do that fine when I don't care. But what if it's my wife that I'm negotiating with? And all of a sudden, separating the people from the problem is not something I know how to do. Right. What happens if it's my boss? What happens if it's one of my direct reports? What happens if it's one of my closest clients? You know, when it becomes important, all of a sudden people can't separate the people from the problem. Yeah. So what I wanted to do is give them practical ways of, of doing those things. And so you talk, you know, one of the things you talk about is, is the, that we are getting, we're kind of our own worst enemies. We get in the way. That's got to be hard for 
people to realize and acknowledge and understand? Was it hard for you to kind of get to that revelation for your own negotiation path? I don't think so for me, because I think I've always known that I'm in the way. (laughs) (laughs) I have have some people in my life who remind me of that, Moshe, which is helpful. (laughs) It's good to have those folks. I was actually really alerted to this in, in a completely different way. So I was a lifeguard when I was younger. I've been trained in CPR four times. But one time my wife and I were at a restaurant and the guy behind us started choking and I froze and my wife ended up doing the Heimlich. And I realized that it's not that I didn't know how to do the Heimlich. I was trained in four times. It's when push comes to shove, I froze. Right. And that's what happens to people when they negotiate too. And I know that's happened to me. Right. I, mean, I think there's two kinds of people in the world that teach negotiations. All right. This is just you know, me talking. I think there are experts who are really good at this and say, watch what I do and you can do it too. And then there's people like me who've struggled with many aspects of negotiations, learned some things along the way that have been helpful and want to share those with other people. I mean, when I took my first negotiation class back in 1994, I took it because I thought I was a bad negotiator. Turns out I wasn't a bad negotiator, but I felt like a bad negotiator. Hmm. And I think a lot of my students come to my classes because they feel like bad negotiators. And I want to share with them some of the things that helped me in getting from where I was to where I am. Yeah, I would say we, I would say Nolan and I probably come from the perspective of that you do too, that we've, we've struggled. We've had some great folks who've come alongside us and been able to show us kind of where those struggles originate from. And then there's a genuine desire to, to help other people and share some of those tips. So uh, you're in, I think you're in, you're in the family here, Moshe, or we're in your, we're in your family. And I think many people struggle. And I think that one of the things I try to do with the book is to try to help people identify where exactly their struggles come from. Cause different of us, different ones of us struggle with different things, right? Somebody might get so angry in a negotiation that they become very stubborn and positional. Someone else might become so overwhelmed that they freeze and don't know how to speak. Right. So different ones of us have different, different situations that affect us and we get affected in different ways. You know, the cornerstone of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. And what I tried to do with the first half of the book is really elevate people's self-awareness as they're negotiating. And once you have that self-awareness, then you can use tools to try to manage some of those things that are happening to you. Well, let's dig into that a little bit deeper, Moshe. Like what, how does someone become more self-aware? Do you have any good tips for them? Yeah. So self-awareness is something that didn't come naturally to me. I believe my wife used to refer to me as oblivious and occasionally still does. (laughs) So I think it can be learned and you can do a few things to do that. One is you need to slow down. You need to slow down and give yourself some time to reflect because very often we rush so much from one thing to the next. We have no time to think about what we're doing. And without that, we have no chance of being self-aware. The second thing I really recommend for people to do is to write things down. You know, if you come out of a negotiation and no matter what happened, good, bad, take a moment, write down a few sentences about what happened, what you did that you were happy with, what the other side did that you can learn from, what you did that you weren't so happy with, why you think things happened as they were. It'll take 10, 10 minutes to do that, but do that over time. And you learn an awful lot about yourself. But, you know, there's been a lot of studies that show that adults learn by reflection and that journaling is something that really helps. Now I'm a terrible journaler. I, a journaler, I have like a stack of like, you know, journals that have four pages written in them and then I gave up. 
but to do a small thing like that and, and yeah. write down a few words after your negotiations, that's going to be enormously beneficial. The other thing is we see ourselves better when we have a mirror. Talk to other people. If you have a chance to, let's say, negotiate with somebody else in the room, you have a work colleague, a mentor, a boss, even you know someone who just took notes, ask them for feedback after. You're going to learn tremendously from, from what you did. You're going to learn about habits that you had that you didn't even know you did. And uh, things that you did that had impact on the other party, good or bad, and you'll be able to learn from that. So those are just like three things that you can do to, to increase your self-awareness. Uh, self-awareness is kind of a lifelong journey, but it's not on or off. You, you improve over time and you learn things. Yeah, Moshe, I, I really appreciate all three of those. Do you integrate that into your course uh, at BU uh, when you work with clients? Are there ways that you integrate the reflection, the journaling, the feedback? So this week, my students have to hand me their reflection journals for their negotiation class. And I'm not the only one in this. Um, I, I have other colleagues at the school who I know do something similar. It's good for me to see what they've learned, but it's it's actually even more, I don't even care what they wrote. I mean, what, what's important to me is that they wrote it. And the process of writing it down really cements the learning, really increases their, their awareness of what they're doing. So yeah, I do, I do that a lot. In my corporate classes, it's a little harder because they tend to be short. And you know, if you have a one-time engagement with a client or a, a two-time, there's not that much opportunity, though I encourage people to do that on their own. Yeah, I can appreciate I can appreciate that challenge very much. All right, so in your book you qualify negotiation risks and fears. Can you tell us a little bit about how you do that and why is again why is maybe that important as we as we build our self-awareness to kind of acknowledge some of the risks or fears around around negotiating. So, you know, I think fears figure into negotiations quite a bit. I think people are so scared to negotiate that they often avoid negotiating altogether. Right? How many times have you had to negotiate with someone and just kept putting it off because it was going to be an uncomfortable conversation and you didn't want to get into it? So I think the more aware you are of what you're afraid of and what's causing your behavior, the more you can then manage it. If you're not aware, you're just going to act on those fears. Now, when it comes to negotiation, I, I've identified three areas of fear that tend to have a lot of impact. The first one is fear of tangible hurt. Right? I mean, think of one of my students applying for a job. If I ask for too much money, they'll rescind the offer. Right? So it's something bad will happen if I try to negotiate. The second one is fear of relationship damage. I can't tell you how many times people have told me, I want to ask my boss for a raise, but I'm afraid of damaging the relationship. I got to tell you, if you can damage your relationship by asking for a raise, right. you probably need a new boss. <laughs> because your relationship should be more robust and you asking for something. I mean, your boss can say yes, can say no, can offer something else, but they're not going to hate you for asking. And, and the third area is emotional pain. People don't like rejection. People feel rejection very personally and very painfully. And they're afraid of asking because they're afraid of getting no. And what I remind my students is that if you don't ask, that's a guaranteed no. I mean, Wayne Gretzky said that you miss every shot you don't take. Yeah. I mean, the same thing is true about negotiation. However, those fears are so powerful that they, they prevent people from negotiating. They make people rush through their negotiations. They make people back off at the first sign of resistance. And if you're aware that that's going on, 
then you can manage it. One of the things that I ask people when I, you know, when I coach them in their negotiation is, what are you afraid might happen? If you ask for this, what's actually going to happen? Hmm. I said, how likely is it that you're going to ask your boss for a raise and your boss is going to say, leave and never come back? <laughs> right? It's not likely. Right. And even if that happened, what are you going to do then? You'll find another job. Right. This isn't the only place you can work. So once people can start thinking through their fears, they become a lot more manageable. They can get the, their, their arms around them. Do you find that any of those three are, are more predominant than another? Or is it just, is it more person to person, situation to situation? I mean, is, is context playing uh, a factor here? I think it's both personal and circumstantial. So for instance, there might be a situation where I don't have any real tangible hurt that's going to happen, but I do care about the relationship. Or I have other situations where it, it's just the, the emotional pain, the discomfort. You know, I've, I've heard of people saying, I'm afraid to send back this food at the restaurant because I don't want the waiter to spit in my, my meal, right? That's tangible hurt. Right. Right. But I've also heard people say, I'm afraid of asking the, the store clerk to let me return this item because I don't want to make this person uncomfortable. Well, now you're in the emotional pain kind of realm. So different circumstances bring, bring it up differently for different people. And I think different people are more driven by one or the other. I think relationship is huge. You know, humans are social animals. You know, none of us want to be driven out of the herd. None of us want to be uh, ostracized or to be seen as somehow ridiculous or unreasonable or, or, or greedy. And because of that, we hold back. So I think you know that, that's a big one, but they're all big. No, I think one thing that you brought out in your book is that it seems like kids, for whatever reason, don't have any of these things that hold them back, that they're able to do, do and ask whatever they want. And then when we become adults, it seems like all that goes away that we do have all these fears. And so why is that? What kind of insights do you have for us? So we'll start off by saying I'm not a child psychologist. So I don't. <laughs> but you stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> so so you're more than qualified to go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> but, you know, I, I do have four kids and I didn't used to be a child myself. So I, I can tell you that one of the things that you see with kids is that they don't have any notion of a downside. Right? A kid can throw themselves down in a mall and have a tantrum, and they know their parents are, you know, they're, they're still going to love them. And they don't have the same restraints because they're also not as aware or self-conscious about the impact that they're having on other people or how other people view them. So you know, I think one of the things that becomes that happens as we grow older is we become a lot more sensitive to how we interact with others and how we're seen by the people around us. The, the other thing that happens, I think, is that we start imagining scenarios, right? In, in, in chapter six, they talk a lot about narratives. We start telling yeah. ourselves stories about what might happen. And I think those stories develop as we get older and we start thinking, okay, if I do this, then this thing might happen because, and we're starting to tell ourselves these stories and that makes it harder for, for us to negotiate. I think as kids, you're not thinking as far ahead. You're more in the moment and you're not weaving those big stories that, that drive your behavior. 
So that was one of my big, my, my favorite parts of your book was your, was chapter six, discussing the narratives, the narratives that we encounter. And it's not just ours, but, but the person we're negotiating with has a narrative. We have a narrative about their narrative. How do you manage that? I mean, so how do you encourage folks to recognize it? And then, and then what, what's the processing piece or, or the kind of the management technique there around these, this thing, I, this idea called narratives? So I think there's two parts, right? There's your narrative and there's the other person's narrative that you, you think about separately. So in terms of your own narratives, we come back to self-awareness, right? You need to know what you're telling yourself. You know, I really believe that the, the stories we tell ourselves define our experience. If I tell myself I'm a bad negotiator, I just put myself on the back foot. If I tell myself that this person I'm negotiating with is 10 feet tall and they've, you know, they've got decades of experience and they're, they're going to clean up, well, again, I put myself on the back foot. So our, our stories define our experience, and we need to be aware of what we're telling ourselves. Again, when I'm coaching people, the question I ask them very frequently is, stop, what are you telling yourself right now? And once they know what they're telling themselves, they can start managing their stories. Because the thing to remember about these narratives is at least our own narratives, we made up. They don't exist. <laughs> we created those, and therefore, we need to realize that whatever narrative we have isn't the only possible narrative. Because I run a small business. I, there's one person in my business, me. And some of my clients are 300,000-person companies. Wow. Right? If I walk in there and I'm thinking, oh, I have to negotiate a contract with them, but they're a huge company and they're just going to dictate to me, well, I, it's self-fulfilling. But if I walk in there and I think, okay, we're here to do business. They've got something I need. I've got something they need. And we need to find something that works for both of us or it doesn't make sense to do business. And all of a sudden, that's a completely different narrative describing the same exact situation, but now I'm negotiating as an equal. Hmm. And that puts me in a different mindset. So to realize that your narrative, whatever it is, isn't the only positive na possible narrative, allows you to then rewrite the narrative. Okay. And one of my favorite things to say is that you want to be the author of your narrative, not its victim, because very often become the victims of our narratives. So that's on, on our side. On their side, right? you know, different people are going to have different narratives about you, but that gives you some opportunity to shape the narratives that they have. So you can ask them questions to find out what their narrative is. That's a really important thing to do. You know, I'm a mediator. And one of the things that happens in mediations is that people get an opportunity to, to tell their narratives to each other. And a lot of times they hear each other's narratives in a completely different way. And that allows them to come to agreements that they weren't able to come to before. Right? Because if I don't know what your narrative is, I'm going to impose a narrative on you. I'm going to say, okay, yeah, this is what Nolan's thinking about me. But when you actually tell me what you're thinking or what you're experiencing, what you're thinking about yourself, what you're thinking about the situation, what you're thinking about me, then I get to see you in a completely different way. So learning to ask the other person questions is a great way to create collaboration and, to, and empathy that leads to agreement. The other thing is we tell people narratives and those narratives shape their expectations. And we have a lot of opportunity to uh, include narrative in how we communicate with people. Do I have to create space for that discussion? I, I can imagine, how do I create the dynamic that they want to 
they're they're able to to share that like their perspective, but also my level of comfort with maybe hearing something that I'd prefer not to hear. So that can be tough, right? And there's two aspects for that. One is to develop your listening skills. Two words that I, I talk about a lot are curiosity and empathy. If somebody says something to you, you want to find out more. You want to understand where they're coming from. You want to realize that even though you have a very different perspective, their perspective is valid from their point of view. You don't have to agree with it. You want to understand it. So that's the theory of what you're trying to do. That's very, very difficult to do when you feel threatened by that or when you feel offended by what they're saying. So then, you know, in chapter two, I talk about the emotional response group or this idea that anything that happens to you creates this emotional spike that subsides over time and that your, your cognitive ability actually takes time to catch up to that. And that is such a key thing because you need to learn to slow yourself down. When someone says something to you and you get upset by it, you need to slow yourself down to the point where you can respond to it, get curious, and then ask open-ended questions and find out what's going on and listen with empathy. But those two things you know, work hand in hand. The, the two things that I probably teach the most are actually chapter two and chapter nine, which is, you know, chapter two is about this emotional response curve and learning to slow down and manage your emotions in real time. And chapter nine is about listening and using open-ended questions and, and reflective listening to understand what's going on with the other party. You know, the listening is what gives you power when you're negotiating, but the emotional self-management is what creates the space that you can then listen. And those two things really have to work hand in hand. This reminds me of... Ted Lasso. I don't know if, any, if either of you've watched Ted Lasso, but he'll say, get curious, not judgmental. And to me, that captures both those points, right? The idea of curiosity. Did I say that right? Get curious. Yeah. Not judgmental. You know, the power of curiosity. And then, and then what I loved is the empathy creates the space and it's the two hand in hand. Thanks. Yeah, that's great. Hey, it's Nolan. I need to jump in right here. This is going to conclude today's episode, but join us next week as we continue our conversation with Moshe. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.